Recently, I visited with Stephen Smoot, who holds a master's degree from the University of Toronto in Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations. In a recent article, Stephen addressed the arguments of those who accept the Book of Mormon as scripture, but not as an ancient relic. He contends that the ancient nature of the scripture is intertwined with its message and cannot be separated. In this episode, join us for Stephen O. Smoot's perspective on the importance of the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hello, Stephen. Welcome to Elliot's Perspectives Podcast. Hi, Laura. Good to be back here. Thank you. Yes, you're back from Toronto. I am, the, the Great White North. It treated me well, but I'm happy to be back here in Utah. I bet, and happy to be done with your master's program, which is quite impressive. Thank you. It was a good program. I learned a lot, and uh, we'll see what the future holds for me in terms of a PhD or some other field or some other avenue. That remains to be determined. For now, I'm just happy to be here with you and discuss the Book of Mormon. Before we dive into your article, The Imperative for a Historical Book of Mormon, which is, by the way, available for free download at both Book of Mormon Central and mormoninterpreter.com, let's lay a framework for our discussion. Let's do it. Sounds good. Okay, so this article is what many people would call apologetics. Yes. Which is a really confusing term. Can you tell us what apologetics is? Certainly. So at its most basic definition... Apologetics is speaking in defense or writing in defense of a certain worldview, whether it's a religious one, a political one, a metaphysical worldview. Most often, apologetics involves defending a religious worldview or a metaphysical worldview. In classical theology, we usually are talking about Christian apologetics. So we talk about sometimes the early Christian apologists who were defending Christianity from a pagan or Jewish critique. Ultimately, the word apologetic derives from the Greek apologia, which means to speak in defense. You may be familiar, and our listeners may be familiar with the famous Greek philosopher Socrates. He was a rabble-rouser in his day, and he was strummed up to court on charges of impiety and corrupting the youth and so forth. And he delivered what was recorded by his disciple Plato as the Apology of Socrates, which was his formal defense before the Athenian tribunal for all these charges that were thrown against him for all these crimes he had supposedly committed. So that's where the idea derives from. You have been in the apologetic sphere for quite a few years. Yes, that's right. Already. You obviously think apologetics is important. I've heard people say, oh, I really don't care for apologetics. Right. Why do you care for apologetics? Well, I guess there's both personal reasons as well as theological reasons. As a matter of fact, there are many statements in the Doctrine and Covenants and many statements by past general authorities, past prophets and apostles who have talked about the significance of defending the church from outside critique, defending Mormonism or Mormon theology. So there are many statements by the Lord in the Doctrine and Covenants that speaks about defending the faith. Past prophets and even current prophets and apostles have spoken about the importance of defending the gospel and defending the church from criticism. Every Latter-day Saint in that respect should have some interest in apologetics. 
they don't have to become sort of trained formal apologists, if you will. They don't have to go off and get degrees and, and study in academia and write and publish in journals and all these sorts of things. Uh, they can just do it in their day-to-day -day life, uh, speaking with friends and family. So on that level, I, I think apologetics is important. And uh, personally, it's important to me because uh, growing up as a young man, as a teenager, uh, my father actively encouraged me to get all sorts of different countering perspectives on Mormon history and Mormon theology. He had me reading Hugh Nibley and Gerald and Sandra Tanner at the same time because he wanted to expose me to a wide variety of, of viewpoints. This Whiplash. Exactly, right? He wanted to see the, both ends of the spectrum here uh, of what people have been saying and writing about Mormonism. And so because of that, I felt it was personally important for me to understand what's the best scholarship out there and what does the evidence really say in terms of whether it encourages or discourages faith in Joseph Smith's claims. And uh, over time, I became convinced that Joseph Smith was a prophet and that his claims were genuine. And so because of that, I personally felt it was important for me to speak up in defense of my beliefs, of my faith. And that includes speaking up both in terms of people who have questions, but as well as, like I said, antagonistic critics who are actively out there trying to dissuade others from believing in Mormonism and from believing in Joseph Smith's claims. Sometimes it's just a matter of being a fact checker. People will put stuff out there, people will believe it, and if there's not a counter argument, then they get away with passing along false information that gets perpetuated. We live in a culture now that because of the internet, these memes and these sound bites you hear on, on Facebook and other social media can spread like wildfire. They can go viral. And before you know it, you have this narrative that's being generated about, say, Joseph Smith or the origins of the Book of Mormon or things like that that are either misleading or outright deceptive, outright flatly false. And it's important for us to correct the record to be fact checkers. The church is doing this right now, as a matter of fact, with the new Saints book that they've released and with the Gospel Topics essays that they've released and with other resources that they are releasing. This paper you wrote was to correct misperceptions about the Book of Mormon. You titled it The Imperative for a Historical Book of Mormon. First of all, define what you mean by the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Sure thing. So historicity essentially means the historical nature or the historical quality of a purported record or a purported ancient text. If a book or a record purports to be history, but it lacks historicity, in other words, it's, it lacks a genuine historical nature, then it's either a, a forgery or a fraud or something like that. The historicity of the Book of Mormon essentially means it's a genuine historical nature or character. It is actually an ancient text as it purports to be, or I should say a translation of an ancient text. And I think that's a really important point to make before we start this discussion. You're really talking about the historicity of the gold plates yeah, rather than the Book of Mormon so much. But throughout this interview, we're just going to say Book of Mormon. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because the two are intertwined with each other, as I argue in my paper. The historicity of Joseph Smith's accounts of coming forth of the Book of Mormon, right, his account of having golden plates and seeing an angel, the historicity of those events, as well as, as we'll discuss, I'm sure, the historicity of the events purported in the Book of Mormon. For example, the resurrected Jesus appearing to the Nephites. Both of these components are complementary to each other, 
and the historicity of one depends on the historicity of the other, and it's this mutual relationship that they have. That's true. The events may have historical significance and be accurate. The point I was trying to make was that maybe the words on the gold plates are not the same words on the Book of Mormon. We know that's oh, not right. true. For one, they're in a different language. Right, right. And they've been filtered through their translator. Certainly, that comes into play. The, the fact that the Book of Mormon, as we have it today, the, the fact that it purports to be a translation raises very significant questions, including the ones that you just raised there. You start off your article by stating that to many non-Mormon readers, the Book of Mormon's insistence on its historicity is troublesome. How so? Religious scholars these days and historians of religion are very comfortable in dealing with sort of old, obscure texts that nobody really takes that seriously these days, old, dusty manuscripts that have just kind of languished in archives for, for generations. You don't have many committed believers of some of these old apocryphal and pseudepigraphical books these days. There's a distance between the believer and the academic and the text in that sense. Like the Gospel of Thomas. Like, exactly, or the Gospel of Judas, right? Or some of these other apocryphal texts that scholars freely discuss with no real, I guess you could say, consequence to modern believers who are living and breathing and actively practicing their faith tradition. So no theological consequences, but it more talks to the culture of the time and reception of Christianity. Right, exactly. So, so scholars might be very comfortable discussing these sorts of texts in a very detached and academic way. There's nothing at stake, in other words, if the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas is truly authentic or not, just for the mere fact that most Christians in the world today just don't really care about that, right? They have the canonical Gospels in the New Testament. That's what they're worried about. That's what informs their faith practice and their faith beliefs. And so academics can safely and comfortably talk about these sorts of, of things in a very dry and detached manner. However, the problem with the Book of Mormon is that it does not purport to be just another dusty old book that somebody found in some monastery in the Sinai Desert, right? This purports to be not only an authentic historical text relating the ancient civilizations of the Nephites and, and the, the coming of Jesus to the New World and these sorts of things, it also purports to have come forth by the gift and power of God. Joseph Smith claimed, of course, that he found, or rather was shown or given the golden plates of the Book of Mormon by the angel Moroni, and that he translated these plates by the gift and power of God through miraculous means, and that the Book of Mormon, therefore, is binding authoritative scripture today for the world. It's a companion to the Bible. It's comparable to the Bible in its authority. So this makes it, you know, somewhat awkward for especially non-Mormon scholars who want to have a detached and distant approach to the Book of Mormon and study it like any other normal, you know, religious text because it self-claims very significant stakes for whether it's true or false and for its coming forth. Several prominent LDS historians have weighed in on this topic. Let's go through some of the most relevant points they made, and you discuss this in your paper. Let's start with Richard Bushman. Right, let's do it. So Richard Bushman, back in the 1980s, in his uh, very important book, Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Mormonism, sort of gave an overview of the significance of the Book of Mormon for Latter-day Saints, what it means for Latter-day Saints, both in the 1830s and today. Essentially, what Bushman points out is that the Book of Mormon is unique in the American religious landscape because of what it claims about itself and how it distinguishes Mormonism. 
rather than just being another, let's say, theological treatise, which there are plenty of in Joseph Smith's day, the Book of Mormon purports to be a new revelation of purported historical happenings, of, of historical events, ancient Nephites being visited by Jesus and so forth. In other words, Bushman says Mormonism is history and not philosophy or, or just theology. Mormonism attempts to tie in modern Latter-day Saints with ancient saints who believed in Jesus through these records which have been brought forth by Joseph Smith. There's this, as Joseph Smith himself said, welding or binding of dispensations together, but it's through the medium of Joseph Smith's purported translations of the Book of Mormon and other texts that makes this welding link. In other words, the early Mormons saw themselves with the Book of Mormon as being on a continuum of the ancient saints restored again today through these means. I found his chapter in Foundational Texts of Mormonism fascinating. Right. In that chapter... Dr. Bushman puts forth the thesis that the Book of Mormon claims to be a historical document. Yes. It never loses touch of its, what we call in the field of history, provenance. So it goes from one person to the other and it documents it. And that was just printed recently, just in uh, January 2018, I think. So he, this right. is, he's consistent. Yeah, the Book of Mormon is very self-aware if you can say, about what it is and what it purports to be. I think that's exactly right. The provenance, or you, you, know, you could say the purported provenance of the Book of Mormon is very straightforward. Very often when scholars will uncover these long-lost texts, right, in these old dusty monasteries and so forth, there's usually a lot of controversy over dating and authorship and, and transmission and so forth. Provenance sometimes becomes a question because there's debates about whether a text is a forgery or not. But with the Book of Mormon, it's very clear-cut. And again, it speaks to that continuum where you have these ancient prophets writing scripture that are then brought forth by a modern prophet revealing or translating scripture, and it ties them together in that capacity. Dr. Lewis Midgley is an apologetic scholar and known in apologetic circles, but not maybe among mainstream LDS. Tell us a little bit about what he's written on the topic. Professor Midgley has emphasized the fact that Mormonism is more than just theology, that rather it is a claimed restoration of ancient covenantal community, right? The biblical covenant that God made with Israel. Mormonism purports to be a restoration of this covenant, a restoration of the priesthood, of the keys of the priesthood, and so forth, that sets it apart from the myriad other Christian denominations that are around us today. For example, Professor Midgley talks about the fact that you can easily draw parallels between Mormonism and contemporary Christian theologies or, or Christian denominations. However, what sets Mormonism apart, and this has been a sore spot between Latter-day Saint Christians and other Christians, what sets us apart is the fact that we claim additional revelation, we claim new authoritative scripture, which purports to be authentic historical texts, just as authoritative as the Bible, just as authoritative as ancient prophetic or scriptural writings. And to boot, this was accompanied by angels coming to Joseph Smith and bringing all this to him. In that way, Professor Midgley has talked about it's not really theology or philosophy or creeds which distinguishes Mormonism from other Christian denominations, but rather this claimed restoration of a covenant, claimed restoration of priesthood, claimed revelation of new scripture 
that's just as authoritative and binding as the Bible. World religion scholar Grant Hardy has pointed out that every reader of the Book of Mormon faces a dilemma. What is that dilemma? Well, essentially, that dilemma is whether you're going to believe Joseph Smith's account of how the Book of Mormon came to be or not. Joseph Smith's claims are very clear. They're very well documented. Joseph Smith was very open and, and very public about what he claimed, which was essentially this. From the very beginning, they were claiming that the Book of Mormon was translated from a set of golden plates that were delivered to Joseph Smith by an angel named Moroni, who was the last author and prophet and editor of this book, who hid the record in the 5th century AD, who later came as a resurrected angel and gave Joseph Smith the same ancient record and instructed and helped him in the translation process and in the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith, of course, also claimed that he translated this book by the gift and power of God. This was a miraculous and divine origin for the book. And therefore, Joseph Smith set himself up in a situation where you either have to accept that angels exist and that miracles exist and that divine translations exist, or you reject that and you reject Joseph Smith's claims. So it's sort of this do or die situation where Joseph Smith himself, through his purported recovery and translation of the Book of Mormon, sets us up to decide whether we're going to believe him or not. I think there's no real middle ground for you between these two opinions, and therefore, both Mormon and non-Mormon readers are faced with a dilemma. Stephen, why do you think the Book of Mormon needs to be read as history? Oh, well, this sort of gets to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? As I argue in my paper, I believe the Book of Mormon can and should and must be read as history in order for its theological claims, in order for its metaphysical and cosmological claims to have any kind of serious credibility. The Book of Mormon does not purport to be a series of lectures or expositions or meditations on theology or religious themes. It purports to be a historical narrative with intertwined theological claims that come out of that historical narrative. Not just small theological claims about, you know, faith or repentance or whatever, but ultimate truth claims about the nature of God and the universe and the cosmos. I'll give you an example. As every reader of the Book of Mormon knows, the Book of Mormon sort of culminates or climaxes with Jesus, a resurrected Jesus, appearing to the Nephites in the New World and teaching them his gospel, establishing his church, giving them priesthood keys to administer ordinances, and so forth. That purportedly happened in time and space, right? Shortly after the resurrection in the first century AD, we'll say like what, 35 or 36 AD, whatever you want to pin it down. But it happened purportedly in a real time and place. If that did happen, if a resurrected, deified Jesus actually did appear to these people in the new world, that has foundational and fundamental implications for the cosmos, for man, for our relationship with God in the cosmos, right? Does God exist? Does he not exist? Is Jesus the son of God or was he just a nice, smart teacher in the first century or what have you? The Book of Mormon kind of cuts through these issues and gives a very clear and definitive answer to them, but it does it premised on the idea of this actually happened in history. That's how the Book of Mormon purports to solve these problems and these questions, is by giving an additional historical real-world example of this happening. And so in that way, the theological claims of the Book of Mormon are intimately bound up in the historical narrative it purports to give to its readers.
We've talked a little bit about what Latter-day Saints scholars have had to say on this issue, including yourself just right now. Let's talk about the skeptics' take on the writing of the Book of Mormon, because it has to be explained somehow. So they've come up with alternative theories. One of them is called the inspired fiction theory. Can you tell us what that is? Right. So the theory goes like this. The Book of Mormon is not an actual historical document. It does not have the claimed historicity which it purports to have. There were no ancient Nephites. Jesus did not really come to the New World and teach to them. Joseph Smith did not really have golden plates that were given to him by an angel. None of that is real in the real world historical sense. However, the Book of Mormon is still inspired and still contains theological truth that is significant and meaningful for believers. And the inspired fiction theory attempts to, therefore, decouple the historical claims of the Book of Mormon from its theological claims. It attempts to do the exact opposite of what I have argued, uh, in other words. It's saying that historicity doesn't ultimately matter for theology and for faith claims, that those are separate entities, and that you can jettison historicity and still maintain the inspired theology of the Book of Mormon. In your article, you said that These authors say that the Book of Mormon could be inspired like the Bible is inspired. Right. That may be confusing to some of our listeners because most Christians think the Bible is historical. Yeah, at least most conservative or you might say orthodox Christians and Jews uh, would accept the historical nature of these purported narratives in the Bible. They would accept the historicity of Adam and Eve and and the patriarchs and the flood of Noah and the kings of Israel and so forth. Certainly Christians accept the historicity of the life of Jesus and his resurrection and the ministry of his early apostles. From reading the proponents of the inspired fiction theory, what I think they mean when they say that the Book of Mormon is inspired like the Bible is that the Bible serves as a sort of focal point for a faith community people gather around this text, the Bible, and this informs their sense of identity, their form of community, their form of belonging with each other and with God and so forth. And this is inspired or inspiring in that sense that it can inspire genuine human connections and community and and achievement. It can inspire the, the human spirit or the spirit of the religious community. It can inspire the faith tradition to do great things and to be good people and so forth. In that sense, The Book of Mormon can do the same thing for Latter-day Saints, according to proponents of the historical fiction theory. Even if the Book of Mormon is not literally true, they might say, or they have said, uh, it nevertheless can shape Latter-day Saint community and identity and consciousness in a way that sort of elevates us into a transcendent or divine realm, a way that inspires our actions with each other, that inspires the stories we tell and so forth. From what I understand, as I read them, that's what the inspired fiction theorists are attempting to do. They're attempting to, like I said, decouple the actual historical claims of the Book of Mormon or the Bible. And it so happens that, as far as I'm aware, most proponents of the inspired fiction theory of the Book of Mormon likewise reject the historicity of the Bible or most of the Bible, most biblical stories. You share the arguments of two proponents of this theory. Can you walk us through their major contentions? The first proponent of this theory that I discuss is Anthony Hutchinson, who basically made the argument that, well, here's a quote from him, we should accept that the Book of Mormon is a work of scripture inspired by God in the same way that the Bible is inspired 
but one that has as its human author Joseph Smith Jr. What Hutchinson goes on to clarify what he means by that is, and I'll quote him again here, I believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God because I am moved by its story and the story of its author, Joseph Smith the prophet, and the story of people brought together by its coming forth. Again, going back to this idea that the Bible shaped a communal identity sense amongst believers, amongst Christians and Jews, the Book of Mormon can do the same thing. It has inspiring stories, it has inspired teachings and moral principles, and that we as a, as a community can sort of shape our religious identity around this book, even if we reject the historicity and just accept its sort of abstract theological and moral claims. This is really interesting. So he was like, this is a good book, but he just couldn't swallow the ancient people. Or the idea of gold plates and angels and that sort of thing. Yeah, that kind of thing. Okay, that's really interesting. So that's Hutchinson's method or his approach. Then I also quote Robert Price, who talks about Joseph Smith being the inspired author of the Book of Mormon. And this is kind of interesting, actually, Because, in his view, Joseph Smith did with the Book of Mormon exactly what the biblical authors did with the Bible. And I'll quote him here. He said, Smith's apparent fundamental source material still survives, the Bible. Like the Gospel writers, Joseph Smith seems to have created new holy fictions by running the old ones through the shredder and reassembling the shreds in holy new combinations. His method appears to be precisely that of the old rabbis and of the New Testament evangelists. So not only did Smith do the same sort of thing biblical writers themselves did to produce new Bible text, he even did it the same way. For Robert Price, the Book of Mormon is like the Bible in that these are, as he calls them, holy fictions, which have been recombined and retold in a new way through a human author, in this case, Joseph Smith, and that therefore, like the Bible, it's inspired in that sense, even though it's not literally historically true or none of its events actually happened as they purport. Those are, I think, the two biggest approaches that proponents of this theory have taken. Either Hutchinson's approach, which is to say the Book of Mormon informs the communal faith identity of Latter-day Saints through its inspiring stories, even though it's not really true, or through Robert Price's method, which is to say the Book of Mormon is, you often hear this term, a midrash on the Bible. Uh, The Book of Mormon is a retelling of the Bible using biblical source material and being channeled through the creative genius of Joseph Smith, whom we can praise as inspired, perhaps in the same sense that Shakespeare was inspired or Herman Melville was inspired or the great literary lights of the past were inspired. But again, it's not really true. There weren't really gold plates or angels, but it's still a nice book in that way. These are respectful criticisms. It's not like they're South Park mocking the Book of Mormon. They're saying these are inspired But you noted some flaws in their theory and things they needed to discount in order to be viable alternatives to the historicity of the Book of Mormon. What would those be? Well, the first and most obvious counterpoint, I think, in my mind, is that these theories have to fundamentally reject all of Joseph Smith's truth claims. They have to essentially relegate Joseph Smith to the realm of being either a pious deceiver. He meant well to deceive people because he had sincere, pious beliefs to inspire people to believe in God or whatever. Or he's a conscious fraud. He knowingly made up this story about golden plates and angels, and he knowingly misled people. Or he was sincerely deluded. He sincerely believed himself that he saw an angel and had golden plates, but he really didn't. Right off the bat, the inspired fiction theory fails in this way because it essentially has to reject 
Joseph Smith's credibility. It has to reject his truth claims. It has to reject the fundamental narrative and fundamental foundational story that Joseph Smith gave about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And if you do that, in my opinion, you are seriously calling into question whether you should believe anything Joseph Smith said at all. You're seriously calling into question his honesty, his credibility, even his sanity by saying, yeah, he did claim that there were angels and gold plates, but none of that was really real. And we can just sort of ignore that and move beyond it. I don't think you can ignore and move beyond it. I think you have to confront that. You also mentioned that one of the reasons that it fails is that it bleeds over into Joseph's subsequent revelations as recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah, that's right. So there are several revelations which speak of the significance of the Book of Mormon going back to the Lamanites to, you know, to gather them in again, to restore to them the knowledge of their fathers and so forth. The Book of Mormon inspired Joseph Smith's larger project to restore the ancient priesthood, to restore the covenant, to restore the ancient order of the church. My boss at Book of Mormon Central, John W. Welch, professor of law at BYU, he has written and others have written on how the Book of Mormon fundamentally shaped Joseph Smith's efforts to restore the church and gospel of Jesus Christ. And that Joseph Smith repeatedly and insistently went back to the Book of Mormon as sort of the divine precedent, you might say, for much of what we see in the church. Priesthood organization, ordinances, think of the sacramental prayers, think of the baptismal rites and so forth. In other words, this is all to say the Book of Mormon did not come forth in a vacuum and it did not just stay on its own and have no significance after it came forth. The Book of Mormon fundamentally impacted Joseph Smith's entire restoration project, if you want to say. It inspired his revelations, the ordinances he restored, the structure of the church, almost everything that Joseph Smith subsequently brought forth or restored after the Book of Mormon in some way dovetails back into or anchors back into the Book of Mormon. Another theory you discuss involves automatic writing, a gift Uh, that many of us would love to channel. Oh, yeah. Especially (laughs) high school students, college students, when (laughs) essays are due. Tell us about automatic writing. Sure thing. So automatic writing is this interesting phenomenon where an individual produces a text, most often through dictation, but sometimes through self-writing, but they produce a text which purports to be the uh, result of unconscious or subconscious effort. So in other words, the author of the text or the one who dictated the text does not claim to be the author in the conscious self or in the conscious sense of I consciously created these words and put it onto paper, but rather through a subconscious or unconscious way, it just automatically, hence automatic dictation, it just automatically came and they just dictated and there the text was. Very often automatic dictation is combined with claims of spiritualism, claims of contact with supernatural or sometimes these days extraterrestrial entities. People who put forth purported automatic texts will often say, this doesn't come from me, it came from an alien, an extraterrestrial, it came from a spirit, it came from God, it came from a supernatural source. And they were just the the stenographer, right? They were just the dictator. They had no conscious input into the, the composition of the text. There's an author by the name of Scott Dunn who has argued that this is how the Book of Mormon was produced, that it is an instance of automatic writing, that Joseph Smith was unconsciously just dictating text. He was not consciously attempting to deceive anybody. He wasn't consciously putting this text together to scam anybody. It just came to him through this, if you want to believe supernatural or just subconscious or unconscious way. 
And in recent years, respected historian Ann Taves has taken up a very similar theory to automatic writing, where she feels like he went into a trance. Did witnesses of the translation process claim that he went into a trance? They would ostensibly have noticed such a thing? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good point because one component of automatic writing is that the, we'll say the author, the automatic author or the dictator goes into a sort of trance-like state. And this is why they'll claim I couldn't have done this myself because I was just sort of in the zone, as it were, in this trance receiving the dictation. And Scott Dunn, he never explicitly says that Joseph Smith went into a trance, but he tries to create that impression because we do know that Joseph Smith was looking at a stone at the Yerman Thummim or the Seer Stone. And in many cases, automatic dictation purports to be the result of looking into a crystal or a stone where the author sees the words or the dictator sees the words. So he looked into a stone. He dictated through long spurts, hours on end of dictation, of rapid dictation without revision and without going back and changing things. The witnesses discussed this very plainly. However, I think you're right to say that it's not quite a trance because the witnesses never discuss it being a trance. They never discuss Joseph Smith being in a hypnotic state or something like that. And also, Joseph Smith was apparently cognizant enough of the dictation process that at certain times he was able to make corrections as they went. There's the famous instance where Oliver Cowdery spelled the name Coriantumr phonetically with an E-R, and then apparently Joseph Smith was aware enough to know he had misspelled it, and so he insisted he correct it to the spelling we have it now, which is just M-R without the E. These sorts of things and other indications make it seem unlikely that Joseph Smith was in a trance in the same way that those who purport to give automatic dictations were in a trance when they gave their dictations. You mentioned earlier how the historicity underlays the entire restoration. But why is it important for the vitality of the theological claims? In addition to the example that I gave earlier about the entire foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught in the Book of Mormon is premised on the belief that he is real, that he is exalted, that he is deified on the right hand of God, that he's the son of God, and that he came to the Nephites himself and taught them his gospel. That's how the gospel is framed in the Book of Mormon, is through this historical narrative of Jesus's mission, atonement, death, and resurrection and appearance to the Nephites. Plus Moroni 10.4, right? He says, pray and see if these things are not true. Yes. Not if they're just like good historical fiction. Or if they sort of feel nice or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, in that same passage, uh, Moroni says, you know, remember the great things that God has done for us, that he's done for our fathers, that he's done for you. Again, Moroni grounds it in history. In fact, Moroni even says at the very end, I'm going to see all of you at the bar of God at the judgment day. God is going to declare the truth of these words. And he's going to point to me, Moroni, and say, did I not declare these words which were unto you by this man? In other words, Moroni himself claims that one day he's going to meet all of us, all the readers of the Book of Mormon, and we're going to have to account for whether we accepted or rejected his words. Nephi makes the same claim at the end of his record. Nephi says, I will stand before the bar of God and I will meet you there and I will testify of these things and so forth. If Moroni and Nephi weren't real, if they aren't real, if they're just fictional characters, then it makes no sense for them to meet us at the bar of God any more than it would make sense for us to meet like Oliver Twist at the bar of God, right? Or uh, any other literary fictional character. So again, this gets back to the fact that both the gospel of Jesus and these other teachings of these other prophets in the Book of Mormon 
is premised on the idea that these were real people and that one day we're going to see them and that we're going to be held accountable for whether we accepted or rejected their teachings. You also mentioned that as things become hypothetical, they lose their zing. Yeah, can I think you that's give a us, good way to say it. Can you give us some examples? Well, look at the history of the Gadianton robbers in Nephite society, for example. Mormon, of course, the chief author and editor of the Book of Mormon, he goes out of his way to make it clear that these Gadianton robbers were the reason why Nephite society failed leading up to the time of Jesus and that Gadiantonism lingered even after Jesus had come and gone, and that this sowed seeds of discord and destruction and, and problems for the Nephites. And Mormon says this to warn us. The whole point of his record is to say, look what happened in our day, and you Gentiles in the last days need to be aware of this stuff because it's going to happen to you too. And if you have our record, and if you're historically cognizant of what happened to us, you can look for the signs in your own society, and you can avoid it and correct it. Well, Again, if there were no real Gadianton robbers, if Mormon was not an ancient historian and prophet, if his son Moroni, who also emphasizes this point in the Book of Ether, was likewise not an actual historical person, if none of this happened except in the fertile imagination of Joseph Smith, then I don't see how any of this is relevant to addressing current concerns in our society. There are other wonderful books, both fiction and nonfiction, that address these same sorts of problems. You also quote Elder Holland. He gives us some thought-provoking material. Do you want to read that to our listeners? Certainly. So Elder Holland, of course, is uh, not known for mincing words. One has to take a do-or-die stand regarding the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the divine origins of the Book of Mormon. Reason and righteousness require it. Joseph Smith must be accepted either as a prophet of God or else as a charlatan of the first order. But no one should tolerate any ludicrous, even laughable middle ground about the wonderful contours of a young boy's imagination or his remarkable facility for turning a literary phrase. That is an unacceptable position to take, morally, literarily, historically, or theologically. So Elder Holland makes it very clear, at least in his mind, what he thinks the stakes are. A line in the sand. A line in the sand, that's exactly right. And I think this goes to underscore the argument that I've made, which is that practically all of what Latter-day Saints do and believe today is dependent on the authenticity of the Book of Mormon and the authenticity of Joseph Smith's claims. I know a lot of serious scholars of the Book of Mormon and believers in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who look at the Book of Scripture and say, this is a strange book. There are things in here I can't explain. And so I'm just going to abandon historicity and look at it as inspired from God somehow. What consequences do you think there are to that? I'll first say that it's understandable how many people can reach that conclusion. There's been a lot of effort over the years to attempt to discredit the Book of Mormon. And to be very fair and very frank, there are strange passages in the Book of Mormon, things that we can't fully explain or account for today. However, I think that's a very drastic leap to make. And I would discourage people from taking that leap. The reason for that being, the consequences for taking that leap are to say that whatever else he was, Joseph Smith was in fact a fraud. He was either a pious fraud, he had sincere, pious, religious motives for being a fraud, 
or he was a conscious fraud. He knowingly and willingly misled people with his narrative and his claims, or he was insane, essentially. He was, a, uh, he was an insane fraud. He, he sincerely believed that what he had was a revelation, but it actually wasn't. That calls into question, again, Joseph Smith's credibility. It calls entirely into question the rest of the revelations he received, the ordinances that he brought forth, the metaphysical and cosmological claims he made about God, about man's relationship to God, about our relationship with each other, about our origins, about the ultimate destiny of the human race, the destiny of earth with the second coming and, and all these sorts of things, the kingdoms of glory, exaltation, all these things that Latter-day Saints are looking forward to, that they're hoping for, that they have faith in, I believe are fundamentally called into question if you are going to say right off the bat, Joseph Smith was fraudulent with his foundational claim about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. I think the only really coherent theological, moral, and logical stance to take on this matter is you either accept Joseph Smith's claims and therefore conform your life to the gospel or you don't. And that's up to individuals to decide, but it's very difficult, if not impossible, I believe, to try to find a nice middle ground. Really? Yes. You don't think there's nuance to be found in there? I realize how it's a big leap from historical to non-historical, but is there some nuance in the translation process and the interpretation of how it's written down where you can get to a place of middle ground and feel comfortable without saying everything on the gold plates was translated word for word? That's a good question, Laura, and, and I appreciate it because it's a good one to raise. And I do want to say this. I believe that there is, of course, room for nuance in understanding, for example, the translation of the Book of Mormon and some of the accounts we have about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, some of the timeline and so forth here. There's, of course, going to be gaps in our knowledge. There's, of course, going to be things we need to be careful about and cautious about. There's a big debate about how the translation worked, what's the relationship between the English text and the plates and so forth. And there certainly is room for those sorts of questions. And there certainly is room for people to say, I don't know all the answers to these questions. I don't know everything. I haven't seen the angel. I don't know for sure that it's all real. However, I'm going to exercise faith. What I think we should not give up or we should not compromise on is the reality of the gold plates, the antiquity of the gold plates, that they were ancient gold plates, the reality of the angel Moroni in his visitations to Joseph Smith, the reality of Joseph Smith's other visions of angelic beings, I guess you could say starting with the first vision with God the Father and Jesus Christ and everything from there, within the realm of accepting or within the paradigm of accepting Joseph Smith's claims, there's room for nuance and understanding. What did it mean for him to have vision? What does it mean to translate? What do, you know, what do these sorts of things fully entail? Stephen, in putting forth your research, what is your hope that members who are wrestling with the historicity of the Book of Mormon will do in their studies? I hope that they would follow the advice given, or I should say the counsel given in Doctrine and Covenants section 88, verse 118, which says to seek ye out of the best books, words of wisdom. People who have questions and who have concerns, and to be very frank, I have questions and concerns. I'm not claiming that I know everything. I'm not claiming that I've just figured it all out and that I don't have any concerns or questions or ambiguities or nuance or anything like that. All of us will have that to varying degrees, including myself. However, the way to address that, I believe, is continued diligent study from the best books, as the Lord says, not just from any book, 
uh, not from memes, not from Reddit, not from Wikipedia, but from solid scholarship, solid historical and academic scholarship, seeking out of the best books, words of wisdom. I also think that includes meditation, reflection, prayer, learning how to reevaluate your paradigm. If you've been locked in a certain paradigm that's not working for you, being open to changing paradigm and changing your understanding in certain things, and ultimately not abandoning historicity of the Book of Mormon. That's a long-winded way for me just to say, you should be reading good stuff out there and studying good stuff. I really like what President Nelson said in the last general conference when he said, good information leads to good inspiration. Thank you, that was wonderful. I mentioned briefly at the beginning in your bio that you work for Book of Mormon Central. Yes, that's right. Do you want to just briefly tell our listeners who are not familiar with that organization what you do? I'd be happy to. So Book of Mormon Central, as its name would imply, is an organization which seeks to centralize all of this information and material that's been produced on the Book of Mormon over the years into one repository that's user-friendly, that's engaging, that's exciting, and that's inviting for both lay members of the church as well as seasoned scholars of the church to come and find benefit from the Book of Mormon. So what we have done is we've created a website, bookofmormoncentral.org, which includes short articles we've written summarizing Book of Mormon scholarship and summarizing insights from the Book of Mormon. We have an archive that has archived uh, past articles, book chapters, journal entries, artwork, multimedia, uh, maps, photographs, you name it. As much as we can get our hands on this material relating to the Book of Mormon, we have archived it and made it searchable and we've made it entirely free for public consumption. You can share it, you can download it, you can use it in your personal study, you can use it in your lessons. So that's the second component is our archive. The third component of Book of Mormon Central is our social media outreach. We are on all major social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and so forth, Pinterest. And uh, we are attempting to engage the world with the Book of Mormon by sharing all of this through social media. All of this is for free, it's all online. You may have seen our no whys, which are these short articles uh, that I mentioned before. The name know why comes from the idea of we want readers to know why the Book of Mormon is so amazing, why it's so true, why it's so profound, why it's so important. And we have taken these know whys, which again are available for free online. You can share them. We have videos, we have podcasts that go along with them. And uh, we have printed them in a book titled Knowing Why 137 Evidences That the Book of Mormon is True. So if you prefer uh, print media, you can do that. You can also print these things as PDFs and read them that way. The point here is Book of Mormon Central is attempting to engage the world with the Book of Mormon to get men and women all over the world to seriously confront the Book of Mormon, to seriously engage the Book of Mormon. And we hope to find spiritual edification from the Book of Mormon, to strengthen faith in the Book of Mormon, to strengthen their testimonies, and ultimately, I guess in that sense, to strengthen faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel. We love hearing people who will say, and they often do on our social media channels, they'll say, I never knew this about the Book of Mormon. I never knew this about the translation of the Book of Mormon. Or I never knew this about Alma chapter 32. I'd never considered this insight before. In Mormon theology, spirituality and intellectuality go hand in hand. And having intellectually rigorous training and exercise can enhance spirituality and vice versa. In a Book of Mormon Central, we don't see a dichotomy between just nice spiritual feel-goody stuff and rigorous intellectuality. We believe that the two are compatible 
and ultimately strengthen faith in the Book of Mormon. And that's certainly what we try to do on LDS Perspectives as well. Nice talking to you today. Thanks, Laura. It was a pleasure. Okay, we're going to have to do it again. Absolutely. Anytime. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.